Welcome to the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with Dr. Robert Creech. For more information about our church and to keep up to date with the latest resources, please visit our website at www.trinitybaptist.org. Enjoy the podcast. About 80 miles west of us in a small, tight-knit Texas town, a community is gathering in houses of worship like we are today. And they're gathering in more pain and with more questions than we can possibly imagine. The families of those 19 school-aged children that were killed, the families of those two teachers, the families of those who were wounded or are still in hospitals, the family of an 18-year-old boy who senselessly shot his grandmother and 21 others on Tuesday morning. The pain is so widespread it even touches some of us in this community. Wounds are still bleeding in Buffalo, New York from the racially motivated shooting just two weeks ago. Uh, 10 black men and women in grocery store uh, shot by an 18-year-old who drove 200 miles to express his anger and hatred. And there's the violence of the war halfway around the world exploding around the people of Ukraine. And we here feel its impact and share its trauma. Seems like the flood of wrong and violence just keeps flowing and flowing and sweeping along and there's no escape. Tomorrow, our nation will pause to remember the hundreds of thousands of lives that have been violently given in defense of liberty over the past more than 200 years and more than 10 different wars. The violence, the war, the destruction, it's the world we live in. There's so much pain and fear and anger in our world. It's where we live. We need to come to terms with that. This is our address. This is in every correspondence we have with God. It's the return address, this world of fear and anger and violence. It's the GPS location for every call we make heavenward. That's where we're calling from. We're calling from a world that is seriously broken, in great pain, full of anger, and full of violence. It's the world in which you and I have been called to be the church. It is the place that we have been called to follow Christ. It's the place we've been called to live a life of prayer. It's the place we've been called to love and to exhibit the kindness and goodness of the Lord. It's the place where we've been called to offer our lives in sacrifice, taking up our cross and following him in this kind of world. Out of the depths of this brokenness, you and I pray and love and follow Jesus Christ. It's the world in which God has called us to serve. We don't get to choose another time and place. If we did, we would choose a world much more peaceful and much more joyful and with much less confusion. But it's this time, this place, the where and when we've been sent as the church. It's not even possible to retreat behind our stained glass windows, is it? Because places like this have often enough been the subject of that kind of violence. Even they have been breached. And so it's out of the depths of this brokenness we pray and love and follow and serve. And the fact is our own fear and anger can paralyze us. We can, in the midst of all of that, forget that we've been called to be salt and light to such a world as this. It is the place Christ has sent us. This world, not some other. And so we have 
to find a way as the people of God to engage this violent, broken, angry, fearful world with the good news of the kingdom of God. One way that we do that is by faithfully living a life of prayer. When I use the word life of prayer, I'm being really intentional with my words. Sometimes we talk about our prayer life, and I'm, I'm trying to avoid that phrase because I think it communicates something other than what I want to communicate. We've used the term prayer life a lot. We might ask one another, how is your prayer life? I taught a curriculum once by T.W. Hunt that was called Prayer Life. It was a wonderful prayer curriculum. It really helped me a lot. But I don't particularly like that expression, and here's why. How's your prayer life sort of conjures up to me a way of thinking about prayer that wonders things like, well, how often do I pray? How long do I pray when I pray? Am I praying long enough? Am I praying with enough passion? How effective are my prayers? And how many of them are answered? How disciplined is my prayer life? Am I keeping a prayer journal? And it just sort of generates a, a picture of a prayer life as a kind of uh, work that we carry out in Christian life. It, it leaves off the relationship with God in, in many ways. At least it can if we're not careful. I prefer asking the question, what is my life of prayer like? What is a life of prayer? A life of prayer is not a little segment of your life where prayer life might be. You have your prayer life and your recreational life and your family life and your church life and your work life. But a life of prayer says this is something that permeates everything we do and all that we are in our relationship with God. It's what Richard Foster called our life with God. Prayer is our life with God. It's living in the presence of God. It's communicating with God constantly through the day. It is what Dallas Willard called a conversational relationship with God. We are called to a life of prayer. A life of prayer is a life that is constantly being lived in response to God. We may think, I decided to pray, or there are these people praying for me, but the fact is, Prayer is always language of response. It's always responding to God. You may think, I feel like I ought to pray about that. That's because God just tapped you on the shoulder and said, we need to talk. <laughs> God always takes the initiative, and prayer is always response to God. And the life of prayer is a life of responding to God throughout the day, throughout our lives, in any and all kinds of circumstances. God summons us to prayer with his love, and when we turn to prayer, we respond to him with ours. One of the ways that we learn a life of prayers from the Psalms, the Psalms, right in the middle of your Bible, is the prayer book of ancient Israel. It was the prayer book of Jesus. Jesus prayed these Psalms repeatedly and knew them by heart. It's been the prayer life of the church since the first century. It's the only book from the Old Testament that you ever find bound with the New Testament. You can't buy a New Testament with Isaiah attached to it. But you can buy a New Testament with Psalms attached to it because it's always been the prayer book of the church. One ancient Christian writer said that in the rest of Scripture, God speaks his word to us, but in the Psalms, he gives us his word to speak to him. He tells us, this is, this is how I would be addressed. This is, these are the things I would talk to you about. These are the things I want to hear from you about. This is the way to praise. This is the way to give thanks. The Psalms are there to teach us this life of prayer through any and all kinds of circumstances. For the last several weeks, and this is the last of those weeks, 
we've been paying attention to a particular group of the Psalms called the Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 120 through Psalm 134. These little brief Psalms that ancient Israel used to sing together and pray together as they made their way three times a year to Jerusalem on these pilgrim feasts. And, and these Psalms are about all kinds of aspects of life because it's understood that even the journey to Jerusalem was a metaphor of this life that we have to live, this journey that we're on through life. And following God in this journey through this life is full of all kinds of things to be grateful for and things to, it, that are painful, and the Psalms all help us express that. The life of prayer is the way that we make our way in our journey toward God. The last one of the Psalms we're attending to is this one that helps us understand, I think, about praying and living a life of prayer in just such a time as this that we live in. It's the 130th Psalm. It begins with this phrase, out of the depths, O Lord, I cry to you. That's the prayer offered by someone who is in a place of deep darkness and despair. It's the prayer when you find yourself beneath the overwhelming waters of the accumulated circumstances of the troubles of this world. As we've been doing through this series, let's read this prayer together. Psalm 130. Together. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, O oh Lord, should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you, so that you may be revered. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than those who watch for the morning, more than those who watch for the morning. O oh Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is great power to redeem. It is he who will redeem Israel from all their iniquities. How do we live a life of prayer when chaos closes in around us, when we find ourselves in the depths, in this dark place, where the violence of this world and its anger and its fears and its uh, sin seem to overwhelm us and press us down? We live a life of prayer in such times in a tension between two realities, two things that are true at the same time, but they're in tension with each other. The first is the reality of human sin and brokenness. That's not a difficult one to identify, is it, around us? The poem here begins in pain. It brings that pain right out into the open and deals with it. It doesn't treat suffering as if it's something to be ashamed of or something to be hidden or covered up or locked away in a closet because faithful people just don't go through such times and don't feel such things as this. Now, it, this psalm gives us the permission to take those deepest places of our lives when we are most confused and the world is most confusing directly to God. It says, this is one of those things, God says, that I want to talk to you about and I want you to talk to me about out of the depths, O oh Lord, I cry to you. Hear my voice. Pay attention to me for a moment, God. I'm going through something. I'm dealing with something that is so difficult I don't even know how to express it. 
It gives dignity to our suffering. It doesn't treat it as something to be embarrassed or covered up. It sets that suffering passionately before God. Henry Nouwen was a writer about the spiritual life, really helpful to many of us. Maybe you've read some of his little books. He wrote this. He said, many people suffer because of the false supposition on which they base their lives. That supposition is that there should be no fear or loneliness, no confusion or doubt. But these sufferings can only be dealt with creatively when they're understood as wounds integral to our human condition. These are things human beings deal with. Therefore, ministry is a very confronting service. It does not allow people to live with the illusions of immortality and wholeness. It keeps reminding others that they are mortal and broken, but also with the recognition of this condition, liberation starts. This is one of those truths that we live with in this world and, and out of which we live a life of prayer. It is the recognition of human sin and human brokenness that is a part of the world we are in. We don't deny it. Psalm 69 starts with this declaration. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there's no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. God said, talk to me about that. Tell me when you're in a place like that. The life of prayer is prayed right out of the depths of human suffering and human sin. Later in that psalm, the psalmist says, But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God. In the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me. With your faithful help, rescue me from sinking in the mire. Do not let me be delivered. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Do not let the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up, for the pit closes its mouth over me. You hear a faithful believer in God praying out of this, out of the depths, out of the deep place. This is the place from which we do the life of prayer. It is from the depths. It's the reality of our world. This is where we kneel and pray. The biblical witness doesn't deny that those things are part of the lives of faithful people, doesn't attempt to cover it over or say that you should pretend that it doesn't hurt when it hurts. It says that when it hurts, you take it to God. When you're confused, you take it to God. When you're angry, you take it to God and let God purify that. Turn these things over to God. He's not embarrassed to receive those prayers from us. He invites us to and gives us language for it in his word. Jesus taught us to pray. Do not lead us to the place of trial, but deliver us from evil. Jesus taught us to pray such prayers. But that's one of the realities that undergirds the life of prayer. It is the reality of human sin and brokenness. But the tension with that is this other reality, which is the reality of God. God is not beyond our sufferings. He's always within earshot. In fact, more than that, when we pray our Father who art in heaven, we're praying our Father who is closer than the breath that I draw, our Father who is in the, the atmosphere, our Father who is right here with me. God is 
present in the midst of our suffering and can be addressed. Psalm 139 raises that question. Where could I even go to flee from your presence? If I go to heaven, you're there. If I go to the depths of Sheol, the grave, you're there. If I flee to the east, as far as I can go, you're there. If I go to the west, you're there. I can't escape your presence. God is always at hand, the psalmist says. And therefore, he's always at the ready to hear our prayers, no matter where we're praying from, no matter what our return address is on that correspondence. He wants to hear from us. God's not, the psalmist says here in Psalm 130, he's not like a cosmic law enforcer who's just looking around for somebody doing wrong so that he can squash them down. Quite the contrary. Verse 3 says, he doesn't mark our iniquities. God, if you marked our iniquities, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. The word translated mark there is the same word used a few verses later down in verse 6 for watching. It's, it says God's not watching for sin. He's not just looking around to see who's stepping out of line so that he can knock them back in line. Rather, there's forgiveness with him. The way that he has chosen to deal with human sin is the cross and forgiveness. There's forgiveness with him. Even if it's our sin that got us into the mess that we're in, God is still there to forgive. He can be called on at such times. Verse 4 says, there is forgiveness with you. Verse 7 says, with the Lord there is steadfast love. Hebrew word is hesed, and it is almost untranslatable. It means God's stubborn love, God's love that never gives up, God's covenant love, the love that he shows to his people constantly that's new every morning. That, that's with him. With him there is, it says, great power to redeem in verse 7. So when the psalmist is teaching us to pray out of times like this, out of the depths, on the one hand, there's the reality of human sin and brokenness and suffering. But on the other hand, there is the reality of God who in this psalm is declared to be personal. He's one to whom we can take our needs. He's a person we can address him. He is redeemer. He is the one who extends his hand to lift us out of our bondage and out of our depths. God is the one who can hear our cry even from the depths. God is the one to whom our lives must answer. The psalmist says that God is the one who forgives sin, even if our sin is what put us in this spot. God is the one in whom we place our hope and with whom we look to the future. God is the one of steadfast love and whom we can trust. God is the redeemer of Israel. God is the one who makes a difference in our life. All of that's in Psalm 130. So there's these, the tension between these two. There's the reality of human sin, suffering, and brokenness that we live in and pray from. And there's the reality of God that is present right in the middle of all of that. Eugene Peterson wrote in his little book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. He said, and this, of course, is why we are able to face, acknowledge, accept, and live through suffering. We know it can never be ultimate. It can never constitute the bottom line. God is at the foundation, and God is at the boundaries. God seeks the hurt the maimed, the wandering, and lost. God woos the rebellious and confused. If God were different than he is, not a one of us would have a leg to stand on. That's what verse 4 says. Because of the forgiveness, we have a place to stand. We stand in confident awe before God, not in terrorized despair. 
Those are the two realities of Psalm 130. Suffering is real, and God is real. We accept suffering, and we believe in God. The acceptance and the belief both emerge out of those times when the bottom has fallen out of our lives and we are praying from the depths, when that's the spot where we kneel and pray. That's how the life of prayer is lived out in times like these, in the tension between those two realities. The psalmist says that the life of prayer in times like these is lived out by engaging two different responses that we have the capacity to make. The first response is that we learn to wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Verses 5 and 6, three times in verses 5 and 6, we are told that we are to wait on the Lord. And that's a posture of trust in God that allows us to deal with time and the time of suffering. Sometimes suffering goes on for a long period of time and we have to wait on the Lord. We don't get control of it. He doesn't come and just snatch us out of it immediately, but it gives us the capacity to endure the presence, the present, in anticipation of the future. We wait on the Lord. Waiting for the Lord is a posture that belongs to a time when we've received a promise from God or a prophetic word about the future, but it hasn't happened yet, and our job is to wait on the Lord until he brings to pass what it is he's promised he will do. His steadfast love will see us through that. It is a time of trust that finds certainty and confidence and courage in order to hang on for a little while longer. It's the voice of prayer that will not be discouraged but keeps praying to God and asking, how long, O Lord, how long, O Lord, as we wait on the Lord. Waiting is an active thing, not a passive thing. It is an active trust. He uses an illustration there and actually repeats the exact words twice. More than the watchman waiting for the dawn, my soul waits for you. Then he says it again, more than the watchman waiting for the dawn, my soul waits for you, Lord. A watchman guarding the city made it through the long night, and as they anticipated the coming of dawn and the freedom from the threats of the darkness of the night, and they saw the first rosy fingers of dawn coming up over the horizon and anticipated being able to rest, uh, the darkness being driven away, that was the anticipation, the waiting of the watchman. But more than that, more than those people long for the light to dawn in the east and relieve them from their the threats and relieve them from their work, more than that, the psalmist said, his soul waits for the Lord through the darkness of the circumstances. The one living the life of prayer waits, looking for the slightest evidence of the dawning of God's light. The active, faithful waiting and longing is wrapped up in prayer as we continue to pray. Jesus taught us to pray that as well. He taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Waiting is praying a prayer like that. That's one of the postures that we have, faithful waiting. But the other response we do in the life of prayer in times like these is that we live in hope. And down near the end of the psalm, you hear that repeated a couple of times. Hey, we're taught to hope in the Lord. And at the end, he says, oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. What Martin Luther said about Psalm 13 could have been said about Psalm 130. He said, it's a psalm in which it's the state in which 
Hope despairs, and yet despair hopes at the same time. Out of the depths, there's the despair. And it ends with, O Israel, hope in the Lord. Despair learns to hope, and hope is prayed and lived out in this place where one might be despairing. Hope is not presumption. It's not just the idea that, oh, don't worry, everything's going to be fine. That's not hope. That's empty-headed optimism. Hope is based on something solid. It's based on the steadfast love of God. It's based on God's promise of his presence. It's based on God's prophetic word about what he wills for the world. We base our hope in that. Hope does not mean doing nothing. Neither does waiting mean doing nothing. Hope is not a fatalistic resignation to the way things are and saying, oh, well, there's nothing we can do about it anyway. We'll just hope in God. It, it means going about our assigned task as the people of God, confident that God is going to bring about his will, and he's going to give meaning and conclusion to all of this. Hope is not something that just compels to keep up, feels compelled to keep up appearances during difficult times and keep a stiff upper lip and all of that. Hope is something entirely different. It's not a bogus spirituality. It's the opposite of being desperate and panicky and uh, scurrying and worrying. It is having confidence in the future because of who God is. Hoping is listening to God's promises about what he plans for the future and then going ahead and living that way right now. Revelation 21 describes, well, God's plans for the future. Here are these beautiful words from the book of Revelation. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them as their God and they will be his people and God himself will be with them. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more for the first things that passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. If this is what God longs for this broken world, for it to be a place where there's no more death and no more sorrow and no more pain and no more tears, if that's what God longs for this world, people who live in hope, who hope in the Lord, go ahead and live that way now. We begin to wipe away tears where we can. We extend arms of comfort to those that are mourning where we can. If God longs for this to be a place where no more does the violence of war and, and gunfire take away lives too early, if that's what God longs for, then those who follow him and live in hope might well consider asking the question, why, do, why does one even, as a Christian, even own something that is designed to tear human flesh and take human life? They may beat those swords into plowshares, rid themselves of those weapons of violence, and say, I'm siding with God and God's vision for the future. I'm going to live in hope rather in this world's culture of violence. By doing all of that, we don't bring the kingdom in. But we go ahead and live the way God intends the kingdom to be. Only God can bring it in. But we live in line with the kingdom already. Waiting. We bear witness to the kingdom by deeds like that. We signify the kingdom by acts of kindness and compassion and refusing to participate in the culture of violence. 
We testify to the truth by living in line with God's revealed will, doing it on earth as it will be done in heaven. That's what it means to hope. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for he has great power to redeem. And he's going to bring about something marvelous one day. And knowing that, we're going to go ahead and live into it now. That's who we are as people of the kingdom. Hope is not empty optimism. It's not dreaming. It's not spinning an illusion or a fantasy to protect us from our boredom or pain. It's not self-deception or denial. It is confident, alert expectation that God will do what he said he will do. And it's a willingness to let God do it in his way, in his time. And a willingness to sacrificially take up our cross and live into it already. One day, you're going to get to fill out a change of address card. God will make all things new. Heaven will come to earth and earth will be healed. One day... We will address our prayers to God from the heights and not from the depths. One day God will bring about what God has promised to do. But until then, out of the depths, we cry to the God who loves us, the God who forgives us, who redeems us, whose steadfast love, whose furious love continues to be directed to us as we make this pilgrim journey toward him together, living in the tension between the truth of human suffering and the reality of the God's loving presence, actively waiting and hoping for God's redemption of this broken world. O Israel, O church, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is great power to redeem. It is he who will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. Let us pray. Our Lord, the depths are not where we want to be, but we find ourselves there much of the time. And we cry out to you knowing that you hear us and that you respond. Grant us strength and courage to endure and to wait. Grant us hope to go ahead and live the way you call for human life to be lived and that you plan for it to be lived by all. Grant us courage to say no to this world's violence and to this world's hatred and to this world's anger and this world's desire for revenge and to offer in its place the kindness and compassion of Christ, the love of God, sacrificial service. Lord, we pray you would extract from us our fear and our anger and allow us to live your people together on this journey in Christ's name. We hope you enjoyed your segment of the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with Dr. Robert Creech. Join us next week for another segment. For more information about our church, please visit our website at trinitybaptist.org.